Good morning, everyone. Gary's here, so we can get started. Uh, we, uh, the last few weeks, we were looking at the Crusades. We wrapped those up last week. Uh, and in doing so, we sort of covered a, a number of centuries. We went from the 900s into the 1200s. Um, but there were other things happening in the church and other places, um, and so we're going to jump back to the 900s and take a look uh, at the Eastern Church. And specifically today, we're going to look at the rise of the Russian Orthodox Church and uh, what they're all about, which is going to carry us right back into actually the 1400s. We're going to cover a lot of centuries today, so we're doing a little bit more topical in this time period. Um, so in the 900s, uh, in the the Russian part of the world, and by Russia I don't mean the entire big continent that it is now, but the European area, um, the largest and most influential city in that area was Kiev, which uh, is the modern-day capital of Ukraine. Uh, and the people that lived there, the tribe, if you will, um, they were Slovakian or uh, Slavic people, um, is what we called them. So not Germanic, not Norsemen, but the Slavic uh, language was sort of the what was behind all the people groups in northeastern Europe. Uh, think of nations like Estonia and Lithuania, Latvia, Russia. Um, these are all Slavic peoples that, um, that were in that area. Um, and so in, in and around the city of Kiev uh, was a tribe called the Rus, or the Rus, which uh, from their name we get the name Russia, which means land of the Rus. Um, so around that area, we had the, the land of Russia, um, and these people were pagan in their religion, like uh, most everybody else in Europe prior to Christianity being spread to them. Uh, they were a warrior society, much like the Norsemen. They tended to expand their territory through, through warfare. I mean, really, that's just about anybody in history um, did that. Uh, when they encountered the Byzantine Empire, because the Byzantines were down to the south of them and, and spread north, um, they ended up not so much at war with them, but they opened up trade with the Byzantine Empire, and in doing so, they were exposed to Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Um, in AD 945, the first Christian church in Kiev was established. Um, the I believe it was the empress at the time. She was ruling uh, in place of her young son, who wasn't old enough for the throne yet, actually got baptized uh, but didn't make Christianity the official religion or anything like that. Uh, and then when her son got old enough to take the throne, he he held on to paganism rather than Christianity, um, largely because he thought the military would stop supporting him if he embraced Christianity because the military was pagan. Um, but his son uh, then was the first one under which the nation would embrace Christianity. Uh, his name was Prince Vladimir, he ruled from AD 980 to 1015. Uh, and so under him, the Rus, Rus actually abandoned their paganism for a new religion. Uh, I say a new religion because they weren't sure which one yet, but they knew it was time to embrace one of the new great religions of the world. Uh, so tradition says that Vladimir invited representatives from Judaism, Islam, uh, the Western Catholic Christianity and the Eastern Orthodox Christianity to uh, representatives from those four to come to Kiev and present their respective faiths, talk about what they believed, the pros and cons of what they believe, you know, basically 
present a case for why their religion was the one to pursue. Uh, So he heard all of these cases, and he narrowed his choice down to Christianity. But he still wasn't sure if he wanted to go with the Catholic Western version or the Eastern Orthodox version. Uh, So from there, he sent representatives out to Rome and to Constantinople uh, to go and actually learn more about these two branches of Christianity from their homelands, if you will. Um, And then those representatives brought back their reports to him, uh, and based on those reports, he chose Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, Supposedly, he chose it because of the beauty and the splendor of the worship services that took place in Constantinople at the Church of the Hagia Sophia. Uh, We have basically a description of what his representatives from Constantinople said. Um, They described their time there like this. They said, We did not know whether we were in heaven or on earth, for surely there is no such splendor or beauty anywhere on earth. We cannot describe it to you. All we know is that God dwells there among human beings. Yeah. Uh, I think this reason for why the the Russians chose Orthodoxy over the Catholic Church uh, tells a lot about uh, what Russian Orthodoxy uh, values. It wasn't so much that they care about doctrine or maybe a moral standard, uh, but they really valued splendor and beauty. Um, And so in the year 8988, the Russian nation, I'll call them a nation at this point, uh, adopted Orthodox Christianity as its official religion. Um, They got rid of their ties to the old pagan ways. They destroyed their old idols. um, And a new uh, leader over their church was elected. He was called a metropolitan, um, which is sort of their version of an archbishop. Um, I say elected, that's not true. He was appointed um, by the Patriarch of Constantinople, who, if you recall, he's like the Pope, but for the Eastern Church. Not quite the same, but a similar idea. So he, the, the Patriarch, appointed a Metropolitan of Kiev. Uh, Vladimir further secured their new relationship with Byzantine by marrying Anna, the sister of the Emperor Basil II. Um, from that point then, there was a lot of open trade and missionary efforts. Uh, Byzantine monks were sent to Kiev, where they established new monasteries. Uh, there was a great exchange between the Byzantine Empire and the Russians of culture and society, uh, even more so than you know was already happening through the trade stuff that they had. Uh, I found it rather interesting that the liturgy of the Eastern Orthodox Church was translated into... Uh, the Slavic language uh, from Greek. Uh, Not the Bible yet, but they did translate their liturgy, their different um, worship service things. Uh, I think this is one of the first major examples of Christian liturgy being translated uh, into a a common language. I mean, this is what the people could follow, could understand. Um, And so as a result of all of this happening, Uh, and especially the language, um, everything being made available in their language, it helped the Russians to to feel like this was their new religion and to find identity in it, uh, give it kind of their own unique flavor. Um, They developed their own style. Uh, We probably see this or are most familiar with this with their church buildings. We all know if you think of a Russian Orthodox church, you, you think of that funny onion dome thing on top. 
That's, that's not Eastern Orthodox, that's Russian Orthodox to have the Onion Dome. Uh, the Christian ethic, uh, especially their teachings of love for the poor and needy, had a very large influence on Vladimir's social policies. Uh, he developed a social wer- welfare system in Kiev, um, providing different services for the needy in that city and, and in Russia, um, the land around it. Uh, according to historians, this was probably the best functioning welfare system in all of the medieval ages. Uh, he also established Christian schools in Kiev to teach Christianity to the next generation. These were state-sponsored Christian schools. Uh, Vladimir passed away in AD 1015, and his 12 sons began to fight for the throne. I'm guessing Anna probably wasn't his only wife if he had 12 sons, but I don't know that. Uh, one son in particular, his name was Sviotopolk, I practiced that, <laughs> decided to kill off two of his younger brothers, uh, Boris and Gleb. I did not have to practice those names. Uh, upon learning of their brother's plot, Boris and Gleb chose to apply the Christian teaching of turn the other cheek and offered no resistance to the soldiers that were sent to kill them. They simply waited around to be killed by their brother. Probably not how that verse is supposed to be applied. Um, And so they were murdered, uh, and later on the Russian church would declare them to be martyrs because they died for following this teaching out of the Bible of turning the other cheek. Uh, And say this because the idea of uh, suffering for Christ, identifying with the suffering of Christ, uh, is one of the central doctrines of the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, And so two of them are dead, there's ten more brothers, uh, and this fighting over the throne then developed into a full-scale civil war that lasted for many years uh, until there was only one brother left, um, and that was Yaroslav the Wise, who emerged as the last survivor and claimed the throne for himself. Uh, as his name suggests, he was a good ruler. Once the wars were over, he was wise. Um, Kiev continued to prosper uh, under his rule, and it developed as a center of intellectual and artistic pursuits, uh, and Christianity continued to flourish there as well under Yaroslav. Uh, at this point, Yaroslav had the Bible translated into the Slavic language, um, and in his rule, the empire saw great growth Uh, of monasteries. Um, A new monastery was established just outside of Kiev in AD 1051. It was called the Monastery of the Caves. It probably was in a cave. Uh, The abbot was a man named Antony, uh, who came from the monasteries of Mount Athos in Greece. You remember we talked about those probably a month or two ago. Um, That was that peninsula where no women are, are still allowed because apparently... The Virgin Mary was the last woman to set foot there. I'm not sure what she was doing in Greece, but apparently she was there. And so um, out of those monasteries came Antony, who set up this new monastery of the caves. Antony's successor was a man named Theodosius, and he restructured the monastery after uh, what was called the Studite Rule, um, which came from the monastery in Constantinople, the Studium Monastery. Um, I've mentioned that to you guys before when we were looking at monasteries in the Eastern Empire. 
Um, and so their method of doing things now was adopted by this monastery outside of Kiev, and it would grow to be very influential in uh, the governing the religion of that area. Uh, Theodosius emphasized unity in Christ through his suffering and encouraged monks to embrace poverty and to work alongside of slaves. Um, one of his fellow monks at the time, a contemporary named Nestor, uh, wrote down a lot of what was going on in Kiev, what was happening at the monastery, uh, in, in a book called Annals, and that is our primary source of information about this time period and, and what we know of of Russia in this in this time. Um, and so the Russian church began to mirror the Byzantine church very closely. I mean, they had their own flavor to it, but they really adopted their practices, their liturgy, all of that. So there's no reason for me to go into what they did for their services because we already talked about it. It was what the Byzantine church did. Um, and so when the great East-West schism happened then in 1054, uh, the Russians, of course, sided with the Byzantine church. Um, things aren't going to remain rosy uh, for Russian Kiev for much longer, though, um, because a new threat rises up in the east, the far east. Uh, the great warrior ruler Genghis Khan and his uh, army of Mongols. Uh, they come about in the early 1200s. Uh, well, they took, the, they took time to get to uh, Europe. They arrived in the 1200s. I think they started conquering China and other places in the 1100s. Um, but under the leadership of Genghis Khan, they invaded Russia and won a decisive victory over the Russian army in 1223. Um, they didn't capture Kiev, they just defeated their army out on the field of battle. Um, fortunately, it seems like a long time period, but war happened slowly. Uh, and so for the Russians, uh, they were saved from further conquest at the time because Genghis Khan died in 1227. Uh, and so his army went back to Russia because it was time to pick a new successor or fight who would be the successor. Uh, and so Russia had a temporary reprieve from the conquest of the Mongols. Uh, but they came back in 1236 under the rule of Genghis Khan's grandson, Batu Khan. Khan is their word for king, so it's not like their last name. They're just all called Khan. Uh, and so in A.D. 1240, Batu Khan captured Kiev, uh, slaughtered most of its citizens, and uh, made the surrounding regions a tributary of the Mongolian Empire. Batu died a year later in 1241, and so again the Mongolian horde, as it was called, their large army, returned home to reorganize. Uh, but they did leave behind a few noblemen, if you will, to continue to rule this territory that they had captured. Kiev and, and its surrounding area, former Russia. Um, this time, uh, following the retreat back to pick a new one, they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't re-emerge to push any further west. Um, we're going to see them again coming into Russia, but at no point are the Mongols going to get further west than what Batu Khan accomplished. Um, but a portion of Russia around Kiev remained under Mongolian control, uh, even after this. Uh, well, the northern area uh, was under Russian control, but they were paying tribute to this Mongolian leadership that was there in Kiev. Um, actually, the, the empire that remained there set up a new 
um, a new little nation. They broke off of the greater Mongol Empire and they called themselves uh, the Golden Horde. That was the name of their nation. And they moved the capital to a city down uh, along the coast instead of being in Kiev. Uh, and so the people then became known as the Tartars, if you guys are familiar with history and have heard of them. Um, they made good sauce for fish. No, that's not. <laughs> Actually, I don't know where that came from. Maybe they did. Um, but the Tartars were the sort of the advance guard of the Mongolian army, so they adopted this name for them. And, uh, and so... What was previously Russia around Kiev is now the Golden Horde with the Tartar people ruled by Mongolians. Um, I'm just about to mention sometime dates here. Uh, and so with the fall and the destruction of Russian Kiev, this kind of ended what, what for Russian Orthodox Church they saw as the Golden Age of Christianity in Russia. Um, I know I kind of blitzed through this, but actually... There, there was a, quite a time span. I mean, the, it, they officially adopted Christianity in 988, and then they first got conquered in 1223. So that was almost 250 years that Christianity was the official religion and the church thrived in Russia. Um, I thought that's interesting. That I mean, I don't think of Russia as a great Christian nation today, but there they were a great christian nation for as long as we've been a nation and i wouldn't call us a great christian nation anymore so uh, just a, a forgotten time period for us in the west i think so there's your answer we're in the we're in the 1200s um so now let's look at what happens to the church under mongolian rule because although the nation had been sort of wiped out the church continued uh thankfully Although the Mongols were pagans themselves, they believed in one god, and so they allowed people that they conquered to worship this one god however they wanted. So for the Russian Orthodox Church, they continued to worship God and just told the Mongols, yeah, we're worshiping one god. And they're like, oh, okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, and so um, this allowed the Russian Orthodox Church to continue throughout this Mongolian um, invasion, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? The time of them being under Mongolian rule, um, which was the primary means, I think, by which the identity of the Russian people was preserved through this period. Um, this was further supported by the fact that the Russian Orthodox Church at this time forbid the union by marriage between Russians and Mongols, um, kind of mimicking what we see with the Jews in the Old Testament. So they kept the the bloodlines, if you will, separate, and the Russian people kept their identity within this time period under the Mongols. Uh, unfortunately, by rejecting the Mongols as much as they did, they also failed to evangelize them. They, they didn't even try to bridge that gap to, to give them Christianity. Uh, and so in time, the Mongols did eventually abandon paganism and by and large embraced Islam. So, missed opportunity there for the church. Um, when the Mongols conquered Russia, they failed. Uh, as I mentioned, they, they took Kiev, and then they made sort of the northern area a tributary state, but they failed to conquer one important city up in the north, which was the city of Novgorod. Uh, and so when Kiev fell, uh, Novgorod became sort of the cultural and religious center of Russia, of the people that identified as Russians. 
um, its ruler then at the time under the, the Mongolian uh, period, because they were still paying tribute, uh, is one of the most famous heroes of Russia and of the Russian Orthodox Church. His name was Prince Alexander Nevsky. <clears throat> Nevsky. Nevsky. That was a little bit easier to say than that other guy. <laughs> uh, he ruled uh, from Novgorod from AD 1236 to 1251. Uh, during his rule, he and his forces uh, repelled two attacks on northern Russia, not by the Mongols, because uh, they were already under them, they are already paying tribute to them, but by Western Catholics. Uh, in AD 1240, an army from Sweden attempted to invade them uh, and were defeated by them. And then in AD 1242, two years later, we saw the German Teutonic Knights, who we talked about last week, uh, invade this northern Russia region. Uh, but they were defeated at a battle that took place on top of a frozen lake. Um, I think that would have been an interesting one. and Maybe not a good way to die. Uh, and so after our look at the Crusades last week, and we saw the behavior of the Catholic armies and um, how they tended to treat the Eastern Church and really anybody that they fought, it kind of makes sense that, uh, that Nevsky made peace with the Mongols because the Mongols allowed the Russians to continue to practice Russian Orthodoxy, uh, whereas he waged war with the Catholics because the Catholics tended to try and force Eastern churches to switch to Catholicism. Uh, the Pope eventually sent some ambassadors to Nevsky, uh, and this is how he responded to him. He said, Our doctrines are those preached by the apostles. We carefully keep the tradition of the Holy Fathers of the seven ecumenical councils. As for your words, we do not listen to them, and we do not want your doctrine. During his rule from Novgorod, he set up a new power center, a neighboring city. Uh, he wanted his son Daniel to start getting some experience as a ruler, so he made him ruler of a little sub-city that he created. Uh, we call it Moscow today. Uh, so this is where Moscow was, was formed. Obviously, Moscow would go on to become a very important city. It would become the center of the resistance to Mongolian rule in northern Russia. Uh, and so it was this new city, this strong Moscow, that the Metropolitan, that's the remember, the leader of the church, he was still called the Metropolitan of Kiev, even though they were in Novgorod now. Um, and now he moved and set up his headquarters for the church in Moscow, uh, but still kept the title Metropolitan of Kiev. That was where the church had started in Russia, and that, that continued to be his title. Um, and so in Moscow, with his headquarters there and the rule of, of Daniel, uh, there was a strong alliance between the church and the state. Um, and the figurehead um, at, at the time in this was a man named, uh, I think I missed a type word there, so I'll go with Sergius, I don't think it's Sergius, Sergius of uh, Radana. Uh, and he is, we're not going to talk much about him, but apparently the Russians consider him to be their greatest national saint. Uh, he formed a new monastery outside of Moscow called the Monastery of the Holy Trinity, uh, and it would become the spiritual center for the Russian Orthodox Church of Moscow for quite a while. Uh, from this monastery, many missionaries went forth into neighboring regions to establish new monasteries and to spread Russian Orthodoxy. Uh, one place they went to uh, that I thought was worth mentioning, they went up to Finland, 
I say up, it might have been kind of west at this point. They were already north. Um, and they even went so far when they spread their, their Russian Orthodoxy into Finland that they translated both the Russian liturgy and the Bible into the, the language of the Finns. So 12, 1300s, the Eastern Church is translating the Bible into common tongues. So let's get back to the Mongols. Uh, I told you Batu Khan died. They went back. Um, it's time for them to come back. We're now in the 1300s, and the Mongol Empire is still around, and they have a new strong ruler um, who wants to try to reconquer the previous extents of the empire and maybe even further if he can help it. Uh, his name is Tamerlane. Uh, and so he comes back to Eastern Europe with a new army, um, and he's here to first try to conquer the nation called the Golden Horde, because you remember they had split off of Mongolia. They were their own independent group, and he wants them back in the previous empire. Uh, and so he attacks the, the Golden Horde and defeats it, destroys their capital city, um, which I mentioned they moved to the capital, not from Kiev, but it was a city on the coast. Its name was Sarai. I tried looking it up on a map, and if you search for Sarai, Russia, you do not find a place on the coast, so it must have been wiped out and somewhere else got the name, so I don't know exactly where it was, but uh, I say coast, I mean of the Caspian Sea, that coast. So, wipes out that capital, uh, there's no more golden horde nation, uh, and thankfully from there, uh, rather than pushing north to conquer Russia, Tamerlane turned south and focused his wars in India and Persia until his death in 1405. Um, and so with the Golden Horde being wiped out, uh, we now have northern Russia spared from further invasion, and um, the Golden Horde area kind of fragmented again back into small, what do you call, city-states, where each city that remained was an independent people group. Uh, and in doing so, that meant that Russia in the north, headquartered in Moscow, was now the the strong power in the region. Um, and so they they sort of, um, shortly thereafter, early 1400s, we're blitzing through some time here, um, the Russian ruler, the Grand Prince Ivan III, um, declared himself to be the sole ruler of all of Russia. Uh, we're in the late 1400s at this point. Uh, and he put an end to Russian tribute being paid to the Mongolian Empire. So from the 1200s to the late 1400s, um, they were paying tribute to the Mongolian Empire. Uh, around this time, somewhere in the 1400s, the Russian Orthodox Church broke its ties to the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, and this is how it happened. Uh, so up until this time, as I mentioned, the, the Metropolitan was a position appointed by the Patriarch of Constantinople. So it wasn't local bishops or anything like that. It was this guy down in Constantinople picking who would be the next metropolitan. Um, so in AD 1439, um, there was a council that occurred, a, a meeting between East and West called the Council of Florence. Um, and in it, the, the met metropolitan of Kiev at the time, his name was Isidore, uh, accepted some terms of submission to the Roman papacy in return for military support from Rome uh, against a new threat in that area, the Ottoman Turks. Um, these are the people that are going to go on to conquer Constantinople. They were 
uh, an Islamic group and a big threat in Eastern Europe. Um, and so the Pope at the time was Pope Eugenius IV. We've talked about Pope Eugenius III. This is Pope Eugenius IV. Um, he, as part of this agreement, made Isidore a Catholic cardinal and sent him back to Moscow. All right. Um, it was called, their agreement was called the Union of Florence. And um, Constantinople, their church also took place or took part in this agreement. So we have the East submitting itself to the West for the sake of military support. Um, when Isidore, now Cardinal Isidore, got back to Moscow, the Russian Orthodox Church rejected what he had done, rejected the fact that he had submitted them to the Catholics, and threw him in prison. Uh, he escaped prison sometime later and fled to Italy, where I think he probably continued to function as a cardinal, but no longer part of the Russian Church. Um, and so now the Russian church, with him gone, had no metropolitan. Normally they would say, hey, Constantinople, you know, pick a new metropolitan for us. But, as I said, Constantinople had participated in this Union of Florence as well. So they were also mad at that church and didn't want them to have any kind of say over their new metropolitan. Uh, and so they continued without one for a few years until in AD 1448... So the council was in 1439, so we're nine years later. They gathered a council of Russian bishops together to elect their own metropolitan. And from that point forward, the Russian church would elect its own metropolitan rather than look to the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Patriarch of Constantinople to be their, their leader um, in choosing that. Um, the Russian and the Eastern Church did become friends again after the fall of Constantinople in 1453, um, because at that point, the Eastern Church then rejected the Union of Florence as well. They said, yeah, never mind, that, your army didn't help, so agreement's off. <laughs> uh, in AD 1458, the Catholic Church, who still is trying to get its fingers in the East, uh, appointed a new bishop of Kiev and created a new church there called the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Um, they, they were called the Orthodox, but they tended to do, um, uh, because they did Orthodox things, they functioned like that, but they were under the papacy, so in a way they were also a Catholic church. Um, in 1470, that church also rejected their union with Rome, and placed themselves under the authority of the Patriarch of Constantinople. Uh, and I believe that that continues to be the case today. In that region, there are two churches. There's the Russian Orthodox Church and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. The Russian one still picks its own metropolitans and is independent, and the Ukrainian one uh, is under the headship of the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Patriarch of Constantinople. Neither one is Catholic anymore. They both said, forget it, to the Catholics and to the... Yes, in the, in the 1400s, mid-1400s. But wasn't it, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the intrusion of Catholicism that split the, the Russian from the Eastern a little bit. Yeah. And then when the Russians got rid of it, the Catholics created their own new church in the area called the Ukrainian Orthodox Church until 1470, when they also said, now we don't want to be tied to the Catholics. And rather than aligning themselves with the Russians, they align themselves with the Eastern Orthodox group. 
mostly we use the word orthodox to distinguish between the Catholic and and the Eastern churches following the schism of 1054. That was when we really, as, as historians, start to distinguish and call the Catholic Church the Catholics and the Eastern Church the Orthodox. Uh, it isn't necessarily that we think one of them is following the Bible better than the other. That's just the names we've given them. Uh, in the 14th and 15th centuries, so 13 and 1400s, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church also saw an attempt at a Reformation. Um, this is predating the Catholic and Protestant Reformation. Uh, there was a group of deacons and clergymen who were called the Strugelniki. I also practiced that one. Um, they were tired of the low moral standards that existed among the Russian clergy, uh, as well as the practice of simony, which we talked about. That's where you sell uh, church leadership positions, selling who's going to be the new abbot, selling who's going to be the new bishop. They said, no, this needs to not happen. Uh, and so they started a reform movement trying to bring the church back uh, away from these practices. We are in the 13 and 1400s, just those centuries, pretty broadly. Um, so unfortunately, this reform movement, uh, I said, kind of went off the deep end because on top of the good things they were trying to reform, they, they also, well, not all of these are bad, but they also rejected the entire priesthood system of the Eastern Church. They rejected all of the sacraments, which I think including baptism and communion, and they rejected the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. So they're, they're almost like the Sadducees of this time period in a way. Um, and so their efforts failed to produce any lasting results or reformation within the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, there was another group of dissenters around this time period uh, that rose up in the 15th century, and they were called the Judaizers. Um, I would say uh, because they wanted to go Old Testament. We don't actually know much about what they taught or what they were trying to do. Um, the important reason to mention them is because of how the church responded to them and there were two schools of thought there there was one group that thought that when you get a, a, a split off group a heresy uh, whatever we need to try and win them back by debate by persuasion bring them back into the church and there was another group that said we need to use the military and police power of the state and crush them yeah so those are going to be the two schools of thought for how the church deals with heresy, um, even in the Russian church. And we'll see it at the Catholics as well. Uh, we'll get to <clears throat> more stories on that at a later date. Um, but as I mentioned, we're already into the 1400s. We're pretty much wrapping up the Middle Ages if I go any further. And I don't want to do that yet because we've got more to talk about. Um, and so we'll save those stories for another time. Um, and so... Kind of a final note, a little bit of a comment on the transition that happened. So we've gone from the 900s, we're into even the 1400s. So we've seen the Eastern Church spread up and form the Russian Church. Um, and in uh, 1453, I've already said this date, who remembers what happened? 1453. Green, the ocean green. It has to rhyme with 1453. No, Istanbul was Constantinople. No, it's that one. <laughs> the fall of Constantinople in 1453. Uh, and so with that fall, um, the, the Eastern Church, especially the Russians, saw the, the heart of Christianity move to Moscow. Um, and there were a couple things that sort of symbolized this change. 
for one, the we already talked about him, the Grand Prince Ivan III uh, married the niece of the last Byzantine emperor. And so the, the bloodline of the Byzantine rulers continues on in the rulers of Russia now. It ended, and that was the end of the Byzantine Empire, which was the remnants of the Roman Empire, remember. So Rome to Byzantine now is up in Moscow through this emperor rulership. Uh, Ivan also adopted the Byzantine symbol of the double eagle as the new symbol of Russia. So he was really embracing this idea that they were the new Byzantine Empire. Um, his, I think it was his son, Grand Prince Ivan IV, who history remembers more commonly as Ivan the Terrible, um, took the title Tsar, which comes from the Latin and Roman title Caesar. Um, so again, they, they see themselves as the continuation of the Roman Empire through the Byzantine Empire, and now it's up there. He even had a coronation ceremony um, similar to the Roman practice that recognized him as the successor of the Roman emperors. Even though in the West we have the Holy Roman Empire where they also think they're the follow-up of the Romans. So, um, And then the Russian Orthodox Church began to see Moscow as the third Rome. So they believed that Rome had departed from the faith uh, under a corrupt papacy um, and that Constantinople, which had become the second Rome, had fallen from the faith when they embraced the Union of Florence. And so they saw that you know, God had abandoned those places, and now, now Moscow was, um, was the core. And I think these, um, this view gets summed up by the words of a Russian monk. Uh, his name was Philotheus, and in 1510 he said this, uh, I want to add a few words on the present Orthodox Empire of our ruler. On earth, he is the only emperor of Christians, leader of the apostolic church, which no longer stands in Rome or Constantinople, but in the blessed city of Moscow. Moscow alone shines in the world, brighter than the sun. All other Christian empires have fallen, and in their place stands alone our ruler's empire, in accordance with the prophetic writings." Two Romes have fallen, but the third stands, and a fourth there will not be. I kind of wonder what prophetic writings he's referring to, if he's thinking of uh, the statue in Daniel maybe, or, or what, but um, the Russians saw themselves as the final Rome, the final seat of the church. Uh, and so just as uh, I think it's easy for us to identify as Protestants, but we see Protestant Britain and Protestant America uh, often saw themselves as as God's people, God's land. Um, at this point in history, the late Middle Ages, Russia saw itself as holy Russia, God's chosen land, and the last remnant of the Christian empires of Rome and Byzantine, that they were the ones through whom God was preserving the Christian faith in its purest form, or so they believed, and the rest of the world had fallen in the heresy of either Catholicism or Islam. So, that concludes the lesson. I learned a lot about Russia studying this one. Um, I hope you guys did as well. Any questions? <laughs>